You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Welcome to another episode of the Driving Law Podcast. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me is nobody. <laughs> I had uh, two possible guests lined up this week, both of whom bravely went out and got their second doses of the vaccine, but unfortunately then got their second doses of the vaccine side effects and had to cancel. So uh, you get just me telling you about a recent BC Supreme Court uh, decision dealing with traffic tickets. Uh, This is the case of Chan. And Mr. Chan had two convictions, one for not giving information to the police at the scene of an accident about who was driving the vehicle, and the other one for uh, being the person that was driving a vehicle that was involved in a hit and run. And he was convicted at trial, and the judgment is very interesting because the court is so critical about the process that was followed in the traffic court trial. So I'm going to read to you from the judgment. Uh, It says, I do not intend to provide any detailed analysis of the proceedings at trial and the legal issues as counsel have framed them for the purpose of the appeal, nor will I undertake to address all of the issues raised by Mr. Chan in his lengthy factum. As the brief excerpt from the filed argument indicates, it is apparent that Crown Counsel quite clearly appreciates the significant errors that arose in the trial. The essence of my analysis, stated in a brief and cursory way, is this. The trial court allowed inadmissible hearsay evidence, which resulted in a statement of the appellant being adduced as an important part of the prosecution's case. The trial court improperly allowed expert evidence with respect to the cell phone location and then compounded that error by misconstruing the evidence to conclude that the applicant's phone was at the scene of the hit and run at the material time. The court then assessed the effect of the circumstantial nature of the Crown case by applying the Villa Roman test to that that misconstrued and improperly admitted evidence, concluding that there was no reasonable legal alternative other than guilt. Frankly, the proceeding at trial is most troubling. What occurred appears to have been an instance of a lay prosecutor, the investigating police officer, I assume not legally trained, proceeding with considerable zeal, but either unaware of the applicable rules of evidence or quite content to flout those rules to secure a conviction. At any rate, it can fairly be said that the officer ran roughshod over fundamental rules of evidence. And I think this case is so important because... I've dealt with this all the time in traffic court where I go to traffic court, I'm dealing with officers. They're not legally trained. They get some training on on prosecuting traffic tickets, but they don't know all of the nuanced rules of evidence. And they want to file things that are hearsay. They want to admit documents that are inadmissible. They want to rely on what somebody told them that somebody told them as evidence to prove that uh, my client is the driver or that my client committed the offense. And they don't necessarily understand that a lot of that isn't admissible. Even statements made by my clients, officers seek to have those admitted at the trial without understanding 
that there needs to be a voluntariness for dear. The number of times in like a traffic court trial that I've had to get up and object to an officer attempting to admit uh, a statement um, because no voir dire has been declared and, and voluntariness is obviously always in an issue. Um, and the number of times I've had to ask for a voir dire where the Crown is seeking to rely on something, it's a, uh, it's, it's a real problem. And it points out, I think, one of the significant flaws about the traffic court system, which is that for the vast majority of the time, you're dealing with a police officer prosecuting the ticket who's not legally trained and a self-represented accused who is also not legally trained and doesn't know the nuances of the traffic court process and doesn't understand the various sort of details and impacts that this can have uh, on them. And, uh, and, and so evidence that's not admissible becomes admissible. Evidence that needs to go through more rigorous analysis doesn't go through rigorous analysis. Even things that, that you know, are admitted by consent uh, shouldn't be admitted by consent, and, and the prejudicial value of admitting them should have been considered. I, I had a trial recently where it was a chain-up case, um, and essentially there's a zone uh, on the highway where if the flashing lights are on, then vehicles over a certain weight are required to put on chains. And my client was driving one such vehicle. He was alleged to uh, not have uh, the chains on. And I asked the officer, well, how are you going to prove that the lights on the chain-up sign were on? And he says, well, I have an email. I said, what, do you, what do you mean you have an email? He says, I have an email saying that the lights were on. I'm like, yes, but that is hearsay. And he sort of just stared at me. I said, you, you understand that that email, that document is hearsay, that you can't just file an email in court as proof of the fact that the lights were on. You have to have a witness come and testify to that or, you know, find a hearsay exception to make it admissible, like admitting some business records from the Ministry of Transportation. But an email to you saying that they came on at a certain time is not, uh, that's not admissible evidence to prove the case against my client. And, and the officer looked like shocked that, that I was bringing this up. It seemed to me that uh, in talking to him, he had never contemplated the fact that this evidence would not be properly admissible at trial. He had never contemplated the fact that, uh, that this was something that, uh, that he couldn't adduce at trial. And so it's not, you know, I mean, the court in, in the Chan case characterizes this as being something perhaps um, done by an overzealous police officer, but it's not always the case that they're overzealous and that's what's leading to inadmissible evidence being admitted at trial or adduced at trial. It's that they genuinely often do not understand the rules of evidence and usually because they've seen it done before by somebody else where no objection's been taken and the judicial justice, hearing no objection to the evidence going in, admits the evidence, assuming uh, that it is it is properly before the court, or relying on provisions of the Offense Act that allow the court to adopt whatever procedures are necessary to ensure a fair and expedient trial, and this is this is sort of this tension that we have in our traffic court legislation, is that under the Offense Act in a violation ticket trial, a judicial justice can adopt whatever procedures are necessary to ensure that a fair and expedient trial takes place. 
Because, of course, you don't want a simple speeding ticket to drag on for 16 hours. You don't need a speeding ticket to take two or three days of court time. Although I have had speeding tickets that have taken multiple days of court time. Um, but rightly so in those cases. And so in hearing all of this evidence, the court is entitled to take into consideration all of these details um, and go, okay, well, I'm going to truncate these procedures that we would ordinarily have in order to make sure that the trial runs smoothly. But that's very different than truncating the rules of evidence and to say that inadmissible hearsay evidence or evidence which has prejudicial effect that outweighs its probative value is admissible to try and make the trial run more efficiently neglects the other aspect of that of that law, which is that it also has to be something that uh, where the where the trial doesn't just run efficiently, but it also runs fairly. And the rules of evidence are there for the fairness of an accused individual. Now the problems in Mr. Chan's case, were compounded. The court says that unfortunate state of affairs was exacerbated by a presiding justice who apparently saw no problem with the admission of the evidence and then, as indicated, substantially overstated its effect to found a conviction. I would note that the irregularities that enabled the admission of the evidence were not minor or technical in nature. These were not close calls. They were egregious violations of basic rules of evidence. And then the court makes a very interesting comment to me, uh, which is that it is not without significance that the appellant was not represented by counsel at the hearing. And Mr. Chan had actually asked for an adjournment for the purposes of obtaining counsel, and that adjournment was denied by the court. And this is another ongoing problem we see in traffic court. We see traffic court justices refusing to grant adjournments, refusing to allow adjournments, on the basis of the fact that the officer um, uh, has come all this way from their detachment, which is close by, on the basis of the fact that it would uh, undermine the interests of justice to allow somebody else to have another court date, that it would be too taxing on the system. But what's more taxing on the system? Having another trial date set for a traffic ticket where multiple matters are set at the same time, where the officer's schedule is considered and where he's usually booked with multiple of his same matters, so he's going to be there anyway, uh, or allowing an unrepresented accused to be thrown to the wolves, so to speak, like in this case, and then having to have the case go to BC Supreme Court, having to have a lengthy factum filed, having to have a crown counsel who's paid much more than the police officer consider all of the evidence, and then having to have a BC Supreme Court justice hear the case and determine the appropriate remedy. That obviously is a greater tax on the system than a simple adjournment which might have cured the problems with the inadmissible evidence being admitted because Mr. Chan would have obtained counsel, counsel would have gone, this expert's not properly qualified or proper expert notice hasn't been given. This is hearsay evidence. It's not admissible. It has no, it has no probative value. Uh, they would have adduced case law to demonstrate to the justice that the evidence wasn't admissible, that the police were seeking to rely on, and the trial would have proceeded in a fair manner, and Mr. Chan would have been fairly convicted or acquitted as the case may be. But instead of that, Instead of allowing all of that and saving all of that court time and expense and public, uh, public money, the, the court said no adjournment. 
you had your opportunity to get a lawyer in the time leading up to this, and so you didn't, and so you don't have the right to a lawyer now, which is just contrary to the charter. And it's a disturbing trend that we've seen in traffic court. And I like that this judgment recognizes the problems with respect to that approach. Now, the second case that I wanted to discuss on the podcast uh, this week is the case of Gordon and Superintendent of Motor Vehicles. So this is a judicial review decision of an ADP. So that's the 90-day driving prohibition that typically accompanies a criminal charge. Um, we don't see a ton of these ADP judicial review decisions actually taking place in court. Um, most of the time, people who receive the ADP, um, uh, you know, they'll dispute it um, and take their shot, but ultimately not decide to appeal it because the advantages of appealing it versus the potential pitfalls to the criminal case um, are not usually outweighing um, the the pitfalls. And so it was interesting to me that this has um, that this was the case, but I thought that this case was also uh, really interesting. Because it's an issue about whether or not um, Mr. Gordon had his charter rights violated um, when the officer didn't put him in touch with counsel before having him provide a sample into a roadside breathalyzer. Um, And he had argued that his charter right to counsel was breached by the police, and so the prohibition should be revoked as a consequence um, consequence, uh, of the breach. Um, and, uh, essentially what had happened in the case is that, um, March 12th, 2020, so right before we all went into lockdown, uh, the VPD got a report of a car that was driving all over the road, running on a rim. These are pretty bad things. There was a license plate, a description of the driver. Um, the officer pulled up additional information, found a mugshot of the registered owner, learned that he had a history of, uh, bad driving and then spotted the vehicle parked at the side of the road with Mr. Gordon standing nearby who was swaying back and forth and peeing on the curb. Like all of the things that you do not want, bad history, bad driving, driving on a rim, uh, peeing on the side of the road, balance problems, and then he stumbled back to the vehicle and pulled away. Um, They wait for further units um, following this vehicle and then eventually box him in by the police and force him to come to a stop where he's removed from the vehicle and handcuffed. And uh, then uh, two other officers arrive and take control over the investigation. They found alcohol in his vehicle. His breath smells like alcohol. He's He's got behavior consistent with an intoxicated person. And uh, Constable Joss arrests him for impaired driving, determining that there's reasonable and probable grounds to believe that he's impaired by alcohol or a drug, reads him his charter rights, and Mr. Gordon invokes his right to counsel. Um, and then, uh, the officer demands that he provide a sample and the, and the court says here that he accompanies her to the police station and provide breath sample for use in an approved screening device at the station, which to me is an odd determination by the court because it was actually a breath demand according to the excerpts from the decision. Uh, he was read his charter rights and warnings uh, again and refused to comply. So I, it's not clear from the judgment to me whether it was a, a breath demand refusal or an approved screening device refusal. But the issue was that he'd invoked his right to counsel 
and then refused to attend at the police station for the purposes of providing breath samples. And the court had to consider whether or not that charter violation um, constituted essentially a reasonable excuse for failing to uh, or refusing to provide a sample. Um, and a case I argued many, many moons ago called Bro. Well, I was counsel for um, a companion case to it, but it's all decided under the, that name. Um, in that case, uh, the court relied on a very old ADP case called Grant, where a breach of the right to counsel could, uh, the court said, uh, could um, uh, result in a finding that somebody's charter rights had been violated and predicate a reasonable excuse. Um, and the court goes through the analysis in both Grant and Bro, um, and then looks at a very recent decision called Bordile, um, in which uh, there was the uh, discussion of charter values um, in the IRP scheme and whether a violation of charter rights can give rise to a remedy in ad an administrative proceeding, um, and more specifically, whether it could give rise to a remedy that would result in non-consideration of the evidence. Um, and ultimately, in, in this decision in Gordon, um, the court looks at this sort of charter values assessment, um, determining that, um, uh, that the, the charter values argument that had been made um, in that case was not, um, not reasonable. And at paragraph 71, the court says, Mr. Gordon submits that it was illogical to follow the Williams line of authority, given that an adjudicator under the Motor Vehicle Act lacks remedial jurisdiction under Section 24 sub 2 of the Charter. The adjudicator was aware that he was not a court of competent jurisdiction for the purposes of the Charter. The question for the adjudicator was which line of authority properly informed his Charter values analysis under the Motor Vehicle Act. There is nothing illogical or otherwise unreasonable in deciding it was the Williams line of authority. So there's always been this sort of competing tension in these cases about how you assess charter values, whether it's it's um, looking at uh, at it in a more like criminal-esque context or whether it's looking at it in a more fairness context, and then whether or not the court can exclude evidence. And and Williams had suggested that the court could uh, could um, exclude the evidence, whereas uh, that's never really been followed in BC Supreme Court. But the analysis of whether a charter right has been breached, apparently, um, according to the adjudicator, could follow that uh, that process. And so then there was this uh, this issue of whether it was reasonable to confirm the prohibition um, on the basis of um, of the other flaws uh, in the evidence. Um, and one of the reasons that the adjudicator rejected Mr. Gordon's evidence in that case was the fact that um, had he agreed to go with the officer to the police station, his right to counsel could have been facilitated. And at paragraph 75, the court says, nor was the adjudicator's finding that Mr. Gordon would have been able to call counsel from the police station speculative. It is an inference drawn from the following findings. The police had acknowledged his right and request. The police did nothing to suggest his request would not be honored. And the handcuffs provided a basis for not facilitating access to counsel at the roadside. From those facts, the adjudicator reasonably inferred that the request would be honored when the handcuffs ceased to be warranted. And I think this is where Mr. Gordon in his argument sort of fell into a problem um, and, and sort of an illogical issue. It's not normal 
in impaired driving investigations or indeed in any investigation where somebody's going to be taken back to the police detachment, it's not normal in those circumstances for somebody to be uh, to be given the right to counsel at the roadside and allowed to contact a lawyer at the roadside. In fact, there's case law on this suggesting that that's not the appropriate approach to take. So the fact that Mr. Gordon in this case um, uh, was going to have the opportunity to count, contact counsel at the detachment, where I think it could also have been inferred from just knowledge of police training and procedure that there's a phone room and uh, a phone that can be used to contact counsel and phone books and access to the internet for searches for lawyers' names um, if he had a particular lawyer he wanted to call. That, to me, I think was uh, was a strategic misstep in Mr. Gordon's argument that he should have had his right to counsel roadside and that he wasn't obligated to go with the police for the purposes of providing samples and facilitating his access to counsel. And so I think in the the uh, reasonableness argument of the breach of the right to counsel, this case could be distinguishable in the future in circumstances where the right to counsel is actually breached at the detachment or where it's a roadside screening device demand and the right to counsel is is breached roadside, although it's pretty hard to succeed on a right to counsel breach on a roadside demand. Um, <laughs> I think that's the distinguishing point. And I don't read this Gordon case as standing for the proposition, as some might, and I think the government probably would like to, um, as standing for the proposition that uh, that the right to counsel or a breach of the right to counsel uh, does not constitute a reasonable excuse for refusing to comply with the demand. I don't think that that's where the government is going to succeed on that argument. It's more about the facts of the case and the fact that Mr. Gordon's refusal was um, uh, was based on his refusal to go to the police detachment, which is a separate charge in and of itself. It's not just a refusal to comply with the demand. It's also a refusal to accompany the officer for the purposes of enabling samples to be taken. Um, and so that's, I think, where this case is distinguishable. Um, and if you're intending to rely on the case, make sure to use those arguments, um, because otherwise the, you may find yourself in a situation where the court or the tribunal is saying, no, 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 this case stands for this proposition when that's not in fact the case. And if you find yourself at the roadside and you want to talk to a lawyer and the police are saying, I'm demanding that you come back to the police station and provide breath samples, go with them. Because if they try and take the samples from you before you've had the opportunity to consult with counsel, that would be a significant and serious violation of your charter rights. And so don't refuse on the basis that they're not giving you a phone then and there at the roadside because you're going to, like Mr. Gordon, end up in a much worse situation. All right. Well, if you're a fan of this podcast, you probably know what time it is. It's my favorite time. Time for the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. And uh, this week we're talking about an individual in Ontario who couldn't decide (laughs) what to do when encountered by police. So... Uh, this is uh, in eastern Ontario, around 6 o'clock in the morning. Uh, there's a police report about a driver um, you know, swerving between lanes. The front end of the car is damaged, and the police locate the vehicle. It's still swerving. They try to pull the vehicle over, but like most ridiculous drivers, rather 
then just come to a stop and accept the traffic ticket or the inevitable impaired driving investigation. The driver continued to drive and didn't just continue to drive, but sped up, kept going faster, faster, faster. So the Ontario Provincial Police uh, get involved and uh, as a result of their involvement, they lay down a spike belt across um, on the 401 and the driver just goes over the spike belt, tires deflating, um, and of course, as they're as they're deflating, the car is coming to a, a slow, ultimate rolling stop. But once uh, the police come up to the window of this now stopped vehicle, the driver refuses to get out of the vehicle, refuses to comply with any directions from the police officer, and so the police had to smash their way into the vehicle, at which point they located alcohol, smelled alcohol, uh, located um, possible opiates um, and drug paraphernalia. And uh, the vehicle uh, driver um, is facing multiple charges, including impaired driving, refusing to comply with a demand, flight from police, possession of stolen property, um, possession of an opiate, and a breach of her probation. So obviously, like, can we just say, if you find yourself in this situation where you're driving and the police are trying to pull you over, it's better to just stop. Like, even if you're terrified that you're going to get an impaired driving charge, you think, oh man, I shouldn't have been driving and now I'm caught. Better to pull over rather than flee from the police and refuse to comply with their direction because then you're exposing yourself to things like obstruction charges. And you can do more to protect yourself if you cooperate to the extent that the law requires you to. If you stop your vehicle, if you produce your license and you state the name and address of the registered owner of the vehicle and your name and address. If you produce the insurance and registration information for the vehicle. If you remain silent in response to other police questions. And if you provide breath or blood or urine or saliva samples or engage in physical coordination tests pursuant to SFST or DRE demands if they're lawfully demanded of you. You're better off to do all of that. What you're not better off to do is end up uh, front page news for being a ridiculous driver and compounding the ridiculousness of your situation um, by fleeing from the police. So that's our podcast. Um, if you would like uh, to um, uh, get a hold of us, you can find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.